Um, my name is Clay Hicks. If I, if I haven't met you or don't know you, I'm, I have the privilege to serve as one of your elders uh, here. And, um, and so, like I said, we will be continuing on today in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you would, go ahead and turn there and we'll, we'll kind of get going. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2 is, as if you've been, uh, been with us the last several weeks, um, is... Is a, um, is a book in which Peter is, is very straightforward on a number of different things. And uh, Vic has been preaching the last couple of weeks. Sorry, I'm pages are sticking together. Vic's been preaching on the last couple of weeks on um, what it was, what the church is, how God sees the church. And so we're going to uh, we're going to continue down that road, uh, but we'll we'll read in context the first twelve verses just to give us the full context of what Peter's saying through the power of the Holy Spirit to us. So, if you would, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in First Peter two, and we'll read one through twelve. And so he says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then for, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you, were, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, I know that was a little bit long, so, but um, that's what I wanted to do is ensure that we had good context in, for our discussion today. And so just as a real quick review, like I said, in order to set the context, we need to reach back just a few verses, remind ourselves of, of some of the things that Vic taught over the last several weeks, and really just establish uh, the nature of who we are. And when I say we, I'm talking about the, the body of Christ, those people who have been regenerated, reborn, and are now new creations in Christ, right? And so in verses uh, 5 through 10, really, he, 
Peter really um, harps on the fact that we are a particular people for God. And we know that in places like Ephesians 2 and other places, we know and we see what we have come from. That prior to our conversion, prior to our, our rebirth, that, people, that a person was in darkness, that we were in spiritual death. And it was only through the power of God that we were brought to spiritual life. But he says in really beginning in verse 9 here, he says, we are a holy nation. A, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. But we are those things for God's own possession. And he has that phrase, so that. That's always an important phrase. When you see that, that's cause and effect. So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him. And the thing that we need to take from that is you are not your own. You don't get to act like you want. You don't get to think like you want. You don't get to be what you want. You are a possession. And the question is, does that bother you? Does that rub you the wrong way? Does that get especially in the middle of our American independent sensibilities? Does that bug you? So Paul referred to himself as a slave of Christ. Many times, actually. And as that slave, you have one main mission. And that is to willingly, happily, excitedly, proudly proclaim and live out the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I'm fond of what Nick has said on a number of times, especially from this, this pulpit, he says, if you're looking for God's will, spend less time trying to figure out his hidden will and more time fulfilling your purpose now, today, in his revealed will. I like that. And so it's with this context that we move into our scriptural focus today, verses 11 and 12. And so in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And we'll begin, the word urge, uh, some of your translations may say beseech, right? This is the same word used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to submit your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. It's a, it's a pleading, it's a, it's a heartfelt drawing you in. I urge you, brothers. And so what does he urge us to? He says, I urge, I, he, he urges us as aliens and strangers. Your uh, translation may say pilgrims, sojourners, something to that effect. And so whichever word is used, it refers to the fact that we as believers do not belong as citizens to where we are. And this is, again, a statement of who or what we are. It's a statement of nature. And he refers to the believers as those who do not belong to the world in which they find themselves. Now, there's a parallel uh, section of Scripture 
in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, where he refers to aliens and strangers, but now as citizens of the kingdom of God. And this is not only found here in 1 Peter. We, we see Paul write it and, and others in various ways all throughout the New Testament. And we even, we even see that in the Old Testament, this same concept existed. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 uh, and on following, he says, These, speaking of the Old Testament saints, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus made it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had to return, had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so church, if we are citizens of somewhere else, then the question is, what is the culture of that citizenship? So if I'm from another country, we have people here who originated from different countries. If I'm from another country, there's a particular culture that comes with being from that place. There's a language, there are dialects, there are ways that I use phrases and, and ideas. I may look different, act different, different traditions. There's a difference to it. And I'm able to recognize people from various parts of the world by, by what their culture and, and everything else brings with them. And there's going to be signs. There's speech, behavior, mindset, all kinds of different things. So the question is, what marks and identifies one as a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? As Peter says for us here, is it, is it love for the word? Is it love for one another? Is it sacrificial living? Is it, as James says, visiting when, wow, widows and orphans in their distress and keeping one unstained by the world? And certainly those are all characteristics of a believer, no, no doubt. The word, the word confirms that. However, there is one sign for the believer that is unmistakable. One sign that is unmistakable and unfakeable for a true believer of Christ, in Christ. And that is a growing, developing, abiding love for Christ Jesus. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Notice he didn't say it was something to do. When Jesus restored Peter after his denials, he asked him, do you love me? And it was only after Peter expressed that he did love him that Jesus gave him something to do. Jesus also said in John chapter 14 that whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And again, the good deeds done must follow the inward reality of the love of Christ Jesus. Now church, we will never love each other 
We will never love others. We will never live sacrificially. And we will never consider others as better than ourselves, as Paul directs. Or as even Jesus said, to follow his commands unless we first love him who called us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. Romans 8.28 continues on. He says, God, this is a super popular verse that we love to only quote the first half. God works all things together for good. And that's generally where the world will stop. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And just a, just a, a chapter before where we are today, in 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9, he says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so we see that the mark of the believer is at its root, is at its core, the love of Christ. And so when we say that we're a citizen of heaven, a citizen of a different place, what is that place? What does that place look like? What, is, what are the characteristics of that place? Revelation chapter 21, if you'll turn there, 21, 1 through 6, and 22 through 27, gives a description of that final place, of that place that we will spend eternity with Christ in. Revelation 21, 1 through 6, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no, no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And then jump down to verse 22. And, he, and John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hallelujah. 
Church, this is the citizenship to which we have been called and into which we have been included. It is to this that we have been destined as believers. This is the goal. This is the prize. That we would be together with the Lord God Almighty and he will dwell with us no longer with a barrier of sin between us. And church, remember, heaven is not heaven because of the gates of pearl or the streets of gold or the pretty colored rocks in the walls. Heaven is heaven because Christ is there. And we will have relationship with him that no longer has a barrier. And this is another example of how our citizenship causes us to be different. In speaking about the world's view of heaven, I'll quote Ira's favorite guy, Paul Washer, everyone wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. And that's true, right? Everyone wants to see there's, you know, oh, that person's in a better place. They're in a better place. They're in a better place. There's no hope for God to be there when they arrive. Right? The difference in our citizenship is we love our king. For the believer, unfettered relationship with the triune God is heaven. The rest of the stuff can fade away. That's heaven. And so look, ladies and gentlemen, I, I have no wisdom of my own. I, I stand before you today with absolutely nothing to offer you that is in any way righteous in and of myself. And I can, I can speak for Vic in this because I've heard him say it many times. I can certainly speak for the rest of the elders because we've talked about it and the deacons and everybody else. Neither Vic nor the elders nor any of the church leaders nor deacons nor mature believers throughout this congregation have anything to offer you except Christ Jesus and his word. We have nothing else. I stand before you this morning and I give you this. This is all I've got. I have nothing else to give you. And so if you're a visitor here, if you're a, you've been an attender here, or you, you're even a member here, and your primary reason for being here is any other reason, such as friendships, relationships, appearance of churchiness, whatever it is, satisfaction of a nagging spouse or friend or parent, you've missed it. Now, we will love you. We will welcome you, although our size gets in the way sometimes, and for that, we offer our apologies. And we will seek to help you in your need, but make no mistake about it. We are here because we gather together to corporately worship, pray, and hear the proclamation of God's word and to function as a small component, a local body of a society whose citizenship is not here. I 
And so if we are citizens of heaven and we're marked by an abiding love for Christ Jesus, how then should we live out that citizenship and that love? And so first of all, Peter directs believers to act like it, right? If we're going to boil it all down, act like it. And he gives two forms of instruction, one positive and one negative. He says, first, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. And so the Bible uses the term flesh in a number of different ways. It can mean our physical bodies, right? Jesus came in the flesh. However, in terms of sin and salvation, it's generally defined as the as yet unredeemed portion of our nature that continues to desire sin and rebellion. It's that part you struggle with, that you fight with. You may not know its name, you may not have given it a name, but you know it. And it's this part of the Apostle Paul's nature to which he refers in Romans chapter 7 when he complains about doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he does want to do. And he does it to the, and he complains about it to the point that he, he's so frustrated that he laments and says, wretched man that I am, who will free me of the body of this death? And we see in chapters 8 and 9 of Romans, Paul discusses the flesh and its role in our lives and in that of the unbelieving world. And there's one particular phrase that I think really, really captures kind of what the flesh is and the battle of it. It's Romans chapter 8, 5 through 9. And he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we see this, church, right? I mean, we look at our world. We see the world living in the flesh, in the unredeemed nature that they have. And it leads to death and to war. And I don't mean physical war, I mean war in everything. A lack of peace everywhere. Relationships, nations, co corporations, churches, businesses, the whole thing. Now the good thing is the hope that Paul had and we have in God uh, because he has promised one day to remove that part of our nature. And we will live as truly obedient citizens of heaven, as Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3. And I want to read that. So if we would turn to Philippians chapter 3, 17 through 21. Philippians 3, 17 through 21. And he says, brethren... Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. 
for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, not may, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, e- he has even to subject all things to himself. How fantastic will that be one day when we have relationship with God without my garbage sin nature? How amazing will that be? And so we see here when, when he uses the word lusts, it's, uh, your translation may say passions. The, word, the original word that, that's used in scripture here means feelings. Now, those things can certainly be sexual in nature, and that's what we think of when we talk about lusts and passions of the world. and things. That's kind of the first, first thought that comes to our mind. But it's a much, much broader word. And it can be, it can be everything that drives you towards gossip, unrighteous anger, laziness, hatred, on and on and on. And to be drawn by the flesh, going back to our citizenship uh, concept, to be drawn by the flesh, I must believe that there's something of benefit for me in it. To be drawn by it, really to be pulled in by it. Which means my allegiance and my mind are set on the things of the world, at least in that moment. As if I was a citizen of it. And that foot in both worlds is what yields the war on my soul. I'm torn apart by it. But I'm a citizen of heaven. But the desires and the actions of my flesh function as if I was a citizen of the world. And that's the war. And church, if you, if you call yourself a believer and you don't feel that war, there's something wrong. This is why the love of and the obedience to Christ Jesus leads to peace. The more I abstain from such things as these, the more I live according to my actual citizenship. And the more I am in accord with my actual actual citizenship, the more I function and feel the way I should be as given by Christ. So the question becomes, so then how do I abstain? And there's certainly a long series of sermons that you could go, go forward on in, in abstaining from sin in, in, in various different things. But I'll, I'll focus here, staying in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.13, just a page over from where we are. And he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Vic preached on this a while back. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope. This is the important part. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. We abstain from the flesh by seeking hard after Christ and loving him more than I love myself or my sin. 
Because let's be honest, when I sin, when I choose to sin, I am basically affecting the attitude that lies within me, which is I love me more than I love him. So the more I know of him, the more I can obey his commands and serve him, the more I see his faithfulness, the more I trust him, and the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I hate the things in me that oppose that love. That's how we abstain. We love him more than we love all this other junk. Our brother Mike Patterson is, is fond of saying tools and gimmicks to refrain from some sort of you know, sin that kind of gets you tripped up in life don't work. And they may have some measure of usefulness here and there, but only a change of the heart, only a change of the want to, of what I want will allow me to break the cycle of a particular sin, right? If someone has an addiction problem, alcohol, avoiding the bar and, you know, and the, the, the alcohol aisle in the grocery store and the ABC store, yeah, that's a good idea. You, you should definitely do that. But what breaks the cycle of addiction is to end the want to. That's what breaks it long term. Now, the second instruction Peter gives is in the form of a positive instruction. So he talked about what we should abstain from, what we should stay away from, and now he brings in what we should do. And he says that, that we should keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So when he uses this phrase, keep your behavior excellent, uh, the word excellent can be translated as honorable or good. Uh, it's used by Jesus in the parable of the sower in Matthew and Mark to refer to the good ground uh, onto which the seed that eventually led to a healthy, growing believer uh, falls. It's used by Paul in 1 Timothy 1.18 in reference to, to the fact that he had fought the good fight. And again in 1 Timothy 3.7 and 6.12 and 13, to refer to the good reputation and the good confession. In Hebrews 13, 18, it refers to the good conscience. And it points to a level of good that is on, it's in a class with righteousness, right? Not simply good by comparison to the world's behavior. And Peter here is essentially restating what he quoted, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Be holy, for the Lord is holy. Right? That's the call. And so in a practical sense, now we know our citizenship. We know some characteristics of, of what it is to be a citizen, citizen of heaven, the abiding, growing love of Christ. We see what... The, the, the land from which or to which we belong looks like. So in a practical sense today, are you the mom or dad who brings their children up in the instruction of the Lord? Are you the person who forgives and loves when wronged or do you attack 
And again, we're not talking about abuse and different things like that. That's it's a different thing. Do you demand your way? Or are you the person who truly sees others as better than yourself and sacrifices yourself for their sake? At work, are you the dependable, get-it-done person who represents Christ well? Do you represent him well in your, in, by your actions, attitudes, and work ethic? Or are you on your own plan doing whatever it is you want to do? As it relates to the early discussion on our love of, of Christ, do you obey his commands? Or do you seek your own will and create some sort of fraudulent face for others to see? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? Why? And he says that you need to, sorry, I lost my place here. You must keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be cause of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Because of your good deeds. So what does this day of visitation mean? So in the Old Testament, this phrase is used a number of times when God would come to a people or a person or a nation or whatever for either blessing or judgment. In Luke 19.44, Jesus uses this same word to describe his visitation to the city of Jerusalem for their salvation that, of course, they ultimately missed. And so Peter's instruction to us reveals that our excellent or honorable behavior, in addition to being directed at our king whom we love, is used to glorify God on the day that he draws near to others who have slandered us or who have hated us and reviled us and saves them. Are you that guy? Are you that woman? Do you live your life in such a fashion that even when someone slanders you, your conduct has been such that people respond by saying, I'm not calling you a liar, but I don't see that coming from him or her. Are you that person? And then when someone has hated you or slandered you, responds at the time of their salvation that, that of course, Christ alone is the one who has saved them, but I glorify God now because of the excellent Christ-honoring behavior I observed in the one who I hated or slandered. Are you that person? And that's what Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is calling us to. Do you routinely examine yourself with a Holy Spirit-led mindset? I'm not talking about the worldly critical way. A Holy Spirit-led mindset. And reach in and as it were, violently tear out, or to use the analogy of Jesus, cut off the things which don't please God and don't serve to live a life before others such that they may glorify God based on your conduct at the time of their salvation. These are hard questions. 
And this is why Jesus says, you are to die to yourself. You're to pick up your cross to follow me. Count the cost because this is not an easy road. And so it's at this point that I want to bring us full circle and connect us back to where we began. We are a people of God's own possession. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ Jesus, King Jesus. He's worth more than every human who has ever lived or ever will live. But Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First John 2.28 and 29 put it, puts it well. It is both encouraging and a little frightening. He says, and now, 1 John 2, 28 and 29, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We studied that recently in the uh, men's Wednesday morning Bible study. I invite you to it. I hop in Central Park. 6.15, Wednesdays. Will you be the person who shrinks from him in shame? Or hides from him in terror because you do not know him? And as Matthew 7 says, he does not know you? Or will you rejoice with joy inexpressible at the coming of our king? I think the choice is obvious. I want to be, I want to be the one on the sidelines. Yea, come Lord Jesus. Take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that your word go out and not come back void as you have promised. I pray that anything that I have said or done that was unclear or that got in the way would just be completely forgotten and your word would rest on the hearts and minds of the hearers. Father, for those who are obedient to you and are walking with you and know you, I pray this be an encouragement for them. For those who have stumbled and are not following you in the way that they should and have become in part friend of the world I pray that this would be convicting your word would be convicting nothing I've said but your word and for those who do not know you God I pray you draw them I pray your spirit draw them and bring them to salvation Father we love you we praise you we give you all glory. You are master and king. And we ask that our worship at the end here be glorifying and honoring to you. Amen.